0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. Uh, My name is Ryan. Um, Today, we are beginning our new series uh, on our values, and and, and we're going to be focusing in a little bit today on intimacy. Maybe you noticed when you came in, um, on the wall in the cafe, we've actually um, designed uh, nine icons that reflect our nine values. Uh, And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be talking through those. So our bigger vision for the year that we talked about last week is telling God's story with everything we are. We talked about how this is kind of where the Lord has brought us in this next chapter um, of, of our church. Uh, and, it, and a really good vision kind of gives us trajectory, but it also enables us to ask the right questions. And one of the first questions that comes out of this vision is, well, who are we? And so one of the ways that we kind of want to walk into answering that question is by examining the values. What are the things as City Beautiful Church that we hold dear? Um, that the, the calling for the church, capital C church, is universal, but there's a very specific way in which we um, carry that calling um, as, as a community in this period and in this time. And so um, we're going to be going through these values one at a time, kind of looking at, you know, you could almost see it as like the different aspects of the story. What are the major themes of the story that we're trying to tell as a church? And so um, our values are broken down into three groups of three, because, you know, three is the, the bibliest number of them all. Um, And these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at our three theological values. And this is kind of how they fit together. By cultivating intimacy with Father God, we learn to inhabit our identity in Christ and discover our purpose as the Spirit-led church. And again, if you can get the Holy Trinity to match up with your other threes, you know that you're on to something divine. And so this is what we're going to be exploring kind of piece by piece over the next three weeks with these three values of intimacy, identity, and purpose. And I think this is really important because so often we actually reverse what I think is the the way in which God has called us uh, to live our lives. And we often do it like this in church. When we behave appropriately, we can earn our right to enter the household and eventually we can approach God. And so we invert it that our purpose, the thing that we do, ends up becoming the the qualifier for whether or not we can participate in God's story, whether or not we can belong to the community. And when we learn how to behave appropriately, then we've earned something. So by our merit, by our ability to perform, then we're able to enter into the household and eventually somewhere in the house, we might actually be able to approach God. And so uh, we wanna look at how do we uh, reorient our understanding of the story that God has written for us to live so that we walk away from this kind of behavior modification program and we enter back in to true intimacy with the Father. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to really focus in on intimacy today. Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here and that you're with us. Lord, I thank you so much um, for the gift that you gave us Jesus, not just in his life, um, but through his teachings as well, and, and most of all, Lord, that uh, we get to focus in on this beautiful parable of the prodigal son uh, these next three weeks. Um, Lord, I pray, I, I know, Lord, that you're already speaking to so many of us um, through that, that story, um, but there's, there's so much more there for us to uncover, and may we um, develop a lifetime of being immersed in the stories that you tell and allowing them to interpret us, to challenge us, and to transform us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, So as I was preparing for this message, this is definitely one of those where... um, You know, you begin to see things differently and you're working it out in yourself as you're going along with it. And so this week was really actually quite difficult for me in terms of uh, framing how we approach intimacy uh, within our community, but I think also from a biblical perspective. But that's kind of part of the process is that we, as we're discovering something, we're seeing the layers within our own lives of how it really affects us. And so I kind of want us to, to start here. Intimacy begins with learning to surrender to the constant presence of a God who loves us. Intimacy is, is rather hard to define succinctly, but I do think that for us, intimacy begins when we learn how to surrender. And so what I'm going to be talking about a lot today is the difference between surrender and control. And how I think this is kind of one of the, the, the primary ways that we're preventing ourselves from entering into intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And that if we understand that it's really about starting from the posture of surrendering then we will find what our hearts so deeply long for. And there's no better way of, of showing you the difference between surrender and control than by giving you a Chinese finger trap. You were probably wondering why this was on your chair. Maybe somebody left it prior, but it's, you know, it, you can, at the least you can play around with it if you totally get bored with whatever I'm saying you have something to fidget with. Uh, but it's this beautiful image of the more that we try to control and, pull and push and press the thing to try to get out of it, the more it ensnares us. But actually, when we begin to surrender to the Chinese finger trap, we realize that it sets us free. And so uh, there's a nice little image uh, to you <laughs> about God. So um, we're looking at the prodigal son parable uh, over the next three weeks. And I really love the parables of Jesus. This is one of his dominant teaching styles. The word parable literally means uh, to throw something alongside of something else. Um, and what a parable does is it kind of, it's, a parable is more of a subversive disruption of how we think things are supposed to work. Then a parable is a succinct answer. Um, And this is something that I think that we've continually reoriented ourselves to as a church. It's less about getting the easily packaged answers that kind of reinforce our worldview. And it's more about us being disturbed by the story of God in such a way as it begins to shake us up. And we begin to ask those right questions. And that's the way that Jesus taught. Very rarely did Jesus ever give somebody a straight answer he kind of give them something, he'd say, go away and figure out what this means, or he'd tell these strange stories that on the surface didn't have a lot going for them, but the more that you sit inside of that story, the more that it begins to disrupt you uh, and challenge the way that you think that the world works. And so with a good parable, we're actually supposed to walk away with more questions than we are answers, because questions are the substance of faith. And so with this parable, I just want to draw out kind of three moments in this story that I think uh, lend themselves so well to our conversation about intimacy with the father, uh, which is what we're focusing on. And so uh, what we find is this father, he has two sons. The younger son comes to him and says, you know, give me uh, my inheritance now. I, I don't want to be in the household anymore. I want to go, and I want to figure it out myself. And so the father, because he loves the son... That gives the son exactly what he wants. You know, and sometimes people ask me, do you believe in the wrath of God? And I say, yes, I do. And I think that's what wrath looks like. Wrath of God is God saying, I love you so much that I'm going to give you what you want, and I'm going to let you leave the house, and I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of the brokenness of the world outside. And so the love of the father, the wrath of the father allows the son to leave, and before long, the son finds himself in this distant land, and he's spent all of his money and he's you know, fulfilled all of the, his dreams and desires, everything he thought he wanted out of life. And he finds himself in this moment of destitution. He can't get any farther away from the father. He can't get any farther away from the household. He's squandered his inheritance. So he kind of turns his eyes back to his homeland and begins to devise this plan of being able to come back to the house and to find his way back into the presence of the father and I love, there's this line, he's kind of, he's walking back towards his father's house and he's actually rehearsing what he's going to say, right? And how much, like, I know that I do this pretty much every day, especially if I know that I'm going to have a difficult conversation, I plan it out of my head because it actually gives me some semblance of control. How many of you, you, you do that, right? We do that all the time. We're always, okay, like, here's, this person's going to probably say this and this is how I'm going to say it. And often what we're doing is we're trying to get ourselves out of con- trouble, or we're trying to orient the story so that we can, you know, protect ourselves, whatever it might be. But there's this really beautiful line. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. I really love that this is the response of the father to the son returning home. You know, I think a lot of times, our impression of God is more influenced by Greek philosophy than it is by Jewish theology. What do I mean? I mean that so, so much of the way um, that the Western world, the Greek, kind of Re- Greco-Roman world has understood God, uh, comes with this idea of going, okay, well, God is perfect, and human beings are imperfect, and God can't really be close to imperfection. God has to be distant. So number one, God is distant. And number two, if God is perfect, that means he doesn't have any problems, which kind of means God doesn't have any emotions. So let's just erase all the emotion out of our God. So God is distant, he's up there, he's over there, and he doesn't have any emotions. And then God, must, in being sovereign, must be in control, that means that he knows everything and he's ordered everything, and basically the entire world is, are just puppets on a string. So our God is distant He's disinterested and he's controlling. Because we believe that control and authority are basically the same thing. So we find this, this this distant, perfect, no feelings, authoritarian image of God. But I think that what Jesus is doing right here is challenging that very foundational understanding of what God likes. And I think what Jesus is telling us is this God cannot help but pursue you. God cannot help but pursue you. You see when we get stuck in that greek understanding of what god is supposed to be, we kind of remove out of it any place of compassion or feeling or emotion. We don't like to put boundaries on god until we, you know, kind of enter into that ultimate existential quandary, can god make a burrito so big that even he can't eat it? You know? But these are this is where these are the natural trains of thought that we have about god. But god is defined. You see there are there are boundaries and borders on God and even for some of you right now that feels really uncomfortable to say that well if he's the absolute and the bigness and the everything he can't have any boundaries but I think God is bound by his identity and the core of his identity is his love that is the foundation that's the thing upon which everything else that we talk about God hangs on and it's usually the first thing that we remove when we're trying to imagine a perfect God And I think his authority then, God's authority, stems from his love. It does not stem from his control. This is what we see, again, in the Father. It's his motivated by love to release the Son, to let the Son do what he wants. And if God was authoritarian and controlling, what we would normally assume that means then is that God predetermined and intended and designed for the Son to leave the household. And so God is actually really cruel. And God is just little more than a puppet master that's already written all of this story rather than giving any semblance of of, uh, free will to the son. But it's the love of the father, it's the love of God that gives us free will. And it's the motivation of the father to pursue us when we walk away from him. And we see this in the son. The son thinks that he has to sell himself back to the father as a servant. He's kind of, as he's working this through in his mind, he's saying, well, I'm not worthy of being a son. I'm not worthy of love of the father. So the, the least that I can hope for is kind of a functional place within the household. That maybe I can earn a decent wage, which is really to say the core of my identity is essentially what I can perform for the father. He's kind of got this contractual obligation understanding of his relationship with God. And he thinks that's the best that he can hope for. is to sign a lease with God. to sign a contract is to make an agreement for how he's going to perform better. He's going to, he's going to be more useful to God. But I love in this image, he's coming and he's preparing this thing, and it says he hasn't even entered into the house yet. He's, kind of, he's on the horizon. He's down the road, and the father runs out to see him. And he hugs him. He throws his arms around him, and he begins to kiss him because the father cannot see anything in his son except for his sonship. He doesn't see his failure, although he knows it. He doesn't see the disappointment. He doesn't even see necessarily the wounds that he's received from the son abandoning him. All he sees is the son coming back into his life. Because what the father sees in the son is his own self-expression of love. That the father didn't create the son so that the son could work for him. The father didn't create the son so the son could perform well. The Father created the Son out of this joyful, creative desire to to give expression to His love, to give an expression to His compassion. And I think the second moment that I see in the story is this, that... You know the the son is kind of trying to work through all of this stuff, and all of it, and the father kind of ignores the son's little contractual understanding of why their relationship is supposed to be, and he commands the servants go back into the house and go and bring rings and put sandals on his feet and put this uh, this cape around his shoulders, and he says, "For this son of mine was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found." This becomes the, the core perspective of how the father receives the son back. You see, the, the son thought that he was disqualified from love. He thought he had already, he messed it up. It was done. It was over. What the son was living out of is shame. And essentially, we've talked about this many times before in our church, shame is essentially saying, I'm not okay with who I am. Who I am at the core of me is not redeemable, is not acceptable, and shame's kind of ugly twin sister is guilt. I'm disqualified because of what I do. Shame and guilt walk hand in hand to prevent us from intimacy with the father. And so the, the son thinks that he has already disqualified himself from love. And it's out of this place of shame that he's, he's writing the narrative of how he's going to enter back into the father's household. It's out of shame that he's actually preemptively trying to control the relationship. Because essentially what the son is saying is, here's the solution to my own problem. Father, I know that I'm a problem to you, but I've already solved it. And how often do you and I do that? Whether it's our relationship with God or with other people. Because we feel so ashamed for who we are. Because we feel so guilty for what we have done or what we haven't done. We actually try to control the relationship even more. We become manipulative. And we say, I know at the core of who I am, I'm a, I'm a liability, I'm a problem for you. But I'm going to solve that problem by just trying harder, by making it up to you, by paying you back. Whatever kind of different ways that you and I have learned how to try to earn love back. We are practicing the lines, we're rehearsing the narrative so that we can still hold on to some semblance of control because we don't want to admit to the fact that at the core of who we are, we don't think that we're good enough. And what happens so often is that tenderness and sensitivity are the first casualties when you and I try to control our relationships. When we try to control our relationship with God, with our family, with our friends the first thing to go out the window is tenderness, sensitivity. That's when we begin to enter into those contracts with one another. That's when we begin to think that we have to live according to rules and regulations in order to maintain some semblance of control in how the world works, in how we work. And that kind of leads me to the third point, or really, um, sorry, that leads me to this. Uh, God is less interested in your right behavior as he is in being with you and you with him is really good. This is why we call it the gospel, people, the good news. If it's not good news, it's probably not the gospel. See, rules and regulations and standards, they cannot change the heart. In fact, when you try to live your life according to rules and regulations that either you have written for yourself or someone else has written for you, in order to try to control your behavior, it reinforces this sense of shame. It reinforces this sense of guilt because you can never perform enough. You can never get it right. It's only these radical encounters with the compassion and kindness that transform us. We like nice. We're, all of us, we're okay with someone's nice to us. Because nice is where we kind of you know, keep, the, keep the, the, the two halves essentially balanced. I'll be nice to your face, and you'll be nice to my face, and then we'll kind of go our way. We don't know what to do with kindness. And I'm talking about real, radical kindness, where you have tipped the, you've tipped the scales in the favor of the other person. Because as soon as someone is radically kind to us, we automatically start thinking of how we can pay them back. Because again, kindness actually makes us confront our shame and our guilt. Because we feel like we're not deserving of kindness. But it begins, good kindness, radical compassion actually begins to open us up to examine what we think about ourselves and how we're trying to control our relationships. And it's radical compassion and radical kindness that truly begin to transform us in a way that the rules and the regulations never could. And the third uh, and final line from this beautiful parable, the father has come back into the house with the prodigal son, and the older son, he's out in the field, and he kind of he observes there's, there's some noise, something's happening within the household. And so the, the dutiful older son comes back in to figure out what's going on, and he realizes there's a party being thrown for the younger son because of his mishaps, because he was a terrible person. And all he did was just come back, and he's been out in the field this whole time. And so he confronts the father, and he's like, what's the deal? Like, why are you showering all of this praise and and love on this kid? He's a failure. He's a reject. I've been here the whole time. I've done everything you've asked of me. I've followed all the rules and the regulations. I've done it right. And you haven't even given me this little party for my friends. And it's so beautiful because the father turns to him and says, My son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. See, the younger son literally left the father. But I think the older son, figuratively, emotionally, mentally, had already checked out of the relationship. Now, he, he, he never realized he was in the presence of the father in the same household that he always lived in. He never realized, he thought that he was, he was putting in his dues, that he was earning something that was freely given from the father. The older brother thought it was through performing rightly and following all the rules and the regulations that maybe he could get his father to love him. And I think this is one of the places where this story really begins to hit nerves in so many of us. Because we can only ascribe to Father God what we have started with in our earthly lives of how our fathers have loved us or have not loved us. And our mothers. The original woundings that so many of us have experienced is because we have witnessed a counterfeit, destitute form of love from the people who started our journey in life. And so much of what we're working to do, so much of what the gospel of Jesus is doing is unlearning all of these things that we've learned about what love is supposed to look like. And I think the older son, he was always in the house, but he never realized that it wasn't about him earning something from the father. Because I think a lot of times when we try to control the narrative, when we try to control our relationships, what we're assuming is that there's inherently a lack of resources in the world. We begin to live out of this spirit of impoverishment when it comes to our relationship. And essentially, what is that spirit of impoverishment? It's this refusal to recognize the abundance that we have in God. To say, God doesn't have enough love for all of us to get everything we desire. And so we have to fight and wrestle for it. And there's not, a, not, lo- not enough love within our community, within our family, our friends. So we have to do everything we can to control other people, to manipulate and draw out of them the thing that we so desperately desire. Because that's the way the world works. That's how we've all grown up. That's what society is telling us time and again. And it's a refusal to recognize the abundance of the Father's love. I think at its core, self-righteousness, then, is this attempt to control the narrative, to justify and protect our existence. self righteousness is about us just trying to control it. If I can just figure it out, if I can behave right, if I get everybody else to behave right, if I can understand the way the world works, and what we're doing essentially when we do that is that we're playing God, and that we're determining who I, who I determine that I am, that's who I really am. And that's, I think, one of the poisons of our culture is we talk about being self-made, that you get to define who you are, and that so quickly leads us to self-righteousness. You know, and I always find within myself that I oscillate between finding myself in the story of the younger son and finding myself within the story of the older son. I find the places where I've been disobedient or I've sinned, and I found myself in that distant land, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to go back to the father, but surely he can't accept me because of all of my deficiencies, so I need to come up with a narrative. I need to like convince God of some letting me back into the house in some way, right? But a lot of times... Probably more often than not, because I've grown up in the church, I, I, I align myself with the older son. I'm like, God, I, I'm doing it all right. Like, I'm following the rules. I'm praying regularly. I go to church every Sunday, whatever it is. Like, why am I still feeling this way? Why am I still feeling like there's, like, there's not enough? Why, I'm doing my work in the household. Why isn't it working? I think that's why this last line is so so important when we're talking about intimacy because it's the father speaking to all of us and saying my child like every you're all you're always with me you've never not been with me you've never not been with me you've always been in the household and everything that I have is yours I created it for you. Why are you wrestling with the world? Why are you trying to fight to earn your place, to earn the resources, to earn my love? You're with me and everything I have is yours. So what is that true righteousness then? God has determined your worth and inheritance because he's God and you're not. Praise Jesus that you're not God and that I'm not God. That we don't have to define ourselves. That we don't have to justify our own existence. That we don't have to protect ourselves. That we don't have to enter into these contractual uh, relationships with our creator and with one another so that we can kind of maintain this semblance of control. Because true righteousness is receiving something you may not believe about yourself because you trust the relationship more than you trust your own ability to define who you are. True right, right, righteousness. Being able to receive the love of the Father. Being able to receive how he sees you. And saying that is more true than what I see about myself. There's this beautiful line uh, in the letter of 1 John. where They say, you know, therefore if our hearts do not condemn us, we praise God. But even if our hearts do condemn us, that we know that we have a Father that's advocating for us. And I think so often we're there. We're like, I don't feel it, therefore it must not be true. Again, one of the lies of our culture that we found, whatever you feel is inherently valid, and you should just make decisions out of that place. And that works out great for all of us, right? We say, you know, even if your heart condemns you, even if right now you're feeling shame and guilt, to go, that's not the ultimate story there's a higher and a better story that the Father is speaking over me and my righteousness is for me to accept the way that God sees me over and above how I feel about myself. So surrender and control, they become these two dominant themes throughout scripture that we see time and again that those who have come before us, our spiritual fathers and our mothers, they've been wrestling through this thing in the same time. It's this kind of question, do you want to abide in trust in the Lord? Or do you want to continue to scramble to try to control your own world, to try to control yourself, to try to control other people? Which is it going to be, surrender or control? There's this really beautiful psalm that we came to um, in our Friday morning prayer group, and I actually want us to read this together. Very short, this is the entire psalm, and it's so beautiful because I think it demonstrates this, uh, this, this kind of dichotomy perfectly. So let's say this together. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. And what the psalmist is doing here is juxtaposing these two kinds of knowledge a knowledge of control and a knowledge of surrender. What he's doing is he's challenging our assumption that we were operate in the world where we go, if I can understand everything, if I can perceive it all accurately, and then if I can control it, then I'm going to be safe, then I'm going to be okay. But I think what the psalmist is challenging us is, is that working, either trying to control your inner world, controlling your behavior, controlling your thoughts, controlling your emotions, or your outer world. Where you're trying to control your relationships, you're trying to control your career, you're trying to control your destiny, whatever it might be. And what happens so often when we enter into that self-righteous need to control ourselves is that we enter into self-hatred and self-hatred is our inability to perform adequately or to maintain control. One of the things that's been so important to me to learn how to develop compassion, first of all, for myself as a controlling person, but for other people in my life that are controlling, is to recognize that people who are critical are often the harshest on themselves. They're only criticizing you because their inner voice is even harsher about on themselves. But they can't handle that. And so what we, do, what we normally do is we just turn that outward. If I can control other people, then I don't have to admit that I can't control myself. And hopefully, that leads us into an increased place of compassion. When we try to control our world, we are only capable of conditional love at best. Conditional love, that's all we're capable of. We're trying to control everything. And we'll do it through dominance, trying to establish our power over people. We'll do it through manipulation, where we kind of fish around to get something from somebody because we don't trust that it's going to be freely given we enter into that fight, flight, or freeze mentality. But real trust is not a control by mastery. Real trust is this contentment through surrender. And I love that that's what the psalmist is saying. He's not not, trashing this idea of knowledge, but he's saying, if I try to find my sense of control in how I understand the world works, then I'm only going to find failure. But I need to enter back into that place of the weaned child, of the baby who's content in the arms of the mother. We see this imagery several times in Scripture where God is so often spoken of as father, but God is often also spoken of as the mother. And so much of our spiritual journey in unlearning these methods of self-protection and manipulative ways of earning love is for essentially for us to return to the place of the infant, to recognize that Eden, the thing that our souls desire more than anything else in the world, is is to return to the womb of God. But we have to give up that semblance of control and enter back into that place that a baby does not understand her mother. A baby cannot control her mother. All a baby can do is to, to, to lean back into the arms of the mother, to trust that the mother will care for her. When we let go of the need to control everything, we can fall back into the arms of our Father in heaven, and abide in his presence. Do you want to keep walking through life trying to behave, trying to control yourself, trying to control your relationships, trying to control your career, your destiny, or do you want to fall back into the arms of mother? That's the challenge to each one of us because it is the wrath of God to let you get what you want. And if you want to continue to play the game of controlling will let you do that because he loves you so much but he's also standing in the doorway of the house searching the horizon to see if you're coming back to him and he's not going to wait until you come back to the house he's not going to put you through the ringer he's not going to point a finger in your face and say I told you so no the father is going to leave the house he's going to run out to pursue you because he can't help himself because that is the definition of who he is this parable is the story of us coming back to the truth that God has been present to us the whole time, but we were the ones that wandered away. We were the ones that were distant in a foreign land, but he's calling us back. And so I, I want us to enter into a time of meditation where we're trying to live in that place of the innocent child resting into the arms of the mother. And so I'm going to pray. We're just going to take a couple minutes just to allow ourselves to sit in that place, not to analyze, not to control, not to try to define, not to try to manipulate or understand, but just to rest. We're gonna have these three phrases that we're extracting from the parable on the screen uh, behind us and around us. So Lord, we confess to you that so much of our lives has been ch- trying to control everything. That if we can understand it, then we can and we can build it and we can conquer it. That's how we're going to earn our way into your house. Um, but we're tired. Lord, we're, many of us, we're really, really tired. And we hate ourselves because we can't do it. We can't live up to our own expectations, let alone yours. But Father, all the while, you're, you're just you're standing in the doorway and you're waiting for us to come home. And so Lord, teach us how to lean back into your arms, to rest in your presence in the way that the weaned child rests in the presence of her mother. Speak to us now, Lord, for we're listening. We want to stay in this place. We want to stay in this place where as children, as little children, as spiritual infants, we just trust that we can rest in the arms of the mother. As we worship, just keep yourself open. Keep yourself in that place. Allow the Lord to speak to you. Allow the Lord to to rush to you, uh, to, to wrap you in his arms cover you with his presence. Let go of control. Learn how to surrender to him. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.